Hello, everybody. Bob Oxley here. It's time for tips, topics, issues, and positions. And uh, today's topic is going to be on the opioid crisis, uh, which has reared its ugly head in the last week with the uh, Johnson & Johnson case. Uh, uh, But first, I thought we'd go back and get some updates uh, uh, as far as the crisis is concerned and how critical it is and what it is. And I've had to invite back... uh, uh, one of my experts, okay, on the opioid crisis, who was on the show here a few months ago that gave us a uh, heads up as to what this thing was all about, and it just has not gone away. Uh, and so I, it's my pleasure to invite back uh, Dr. Lish Harris, who is a uh, professor in criminal justice, but also he's just uh, been promoted. And he's now the chair of the Applied Sociology and Criminal Justice Department here at Dixie State University. So welcome back. Dr. Harris. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. All right. Um, Can I call you Lish? Is that okay for you? Absolutely. All right. Um, What I'd like to do at the beginning, we always start off, uh, when you were here last time, I was shocked at some of the numbers that you had. And so uh, then with the Johnson & Johnson case last week, so I thought this is the best time to call you back to uh, to give you kind of an update, where are we at in 2018, going into 2019, some numbers, uh, how, how serious is the crisis, are we still as bad off as we were, and actually begin by just indicating what is an opioid crisis, how did it get here, why are we in the situation we are, and we're kind of unique as far as a country is concerned on this. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, give us a little bit of a brief as far as how did we get here and what is this thing? The opioid crisis has been going on for over a decade now, and probably the the statistic that people are most familiar with is just with overdose deaths. Overdose deaths in the United States have gone up pretty consistently over that period of time, and over the last few years, they've there's been some signs that that's going to abate a little bit, that hopefully the numbers will start to decline. The difficulty in trying to parse through overdose numbers, just generally speaking, is they include all drugs. Mm. But the opioid crisis has been by far the main contributor to that. Um, There's far more people that have passed away because of overdose due to opioids than they have just about any other drug that you can think of. And if the listeners can think back to other drug epidemics that they may have lived through, whether it was uh, the crack cocaine epidemic in the late 80s and early 90s, or whether it was the meth epidemic at the beginning of the 21st century, none of those epidemics came even close, even really within the same ballpark uh, to the number of deaths as this particular epidemic has. I'm I'm kind of of the belief that historically we've called things epidemics when they haven't deserved that name. And I think both of the epidemics I just referred to probably fall into that category a little bit. This one because of the death toll, would have to be considered truly a drug a drug epidemic. And the part of it that I think we'll get to talking to a little bit later that is extraordinarily interesting is there's just, it's been because of legal drugs. It's been because of prescription drugs. So we spent decades building uh, an infrastructure of drug prohibition, and that infrastructure was not able to handle this particular crisis. And so it's been really uh, interesting to, to kind of watch how there's been changes and lawsuits. And like I said, I think we'll get to that yes. in a little bit. But 
yeah, this crisis has been going on for quite a while. There's just remarkable numbers. Uh, for listeners that are interested, I, I would recommend, I think the best resource that you can find online is the Washington Post has an opioid database that you I can go to. That. That's it's interesting. Pr- it's pretty remarkable. They actually, the Washington Post and a small newspaper in West Virginia, which has been one of the states hit hardest by the opioid epidemic, they sued to try and get this information. The DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, tracks or has tracked every opioid pill that's been produced and where it goes. And they have a database with all of that information for billions of pills. And that information was submitted as evidence in a trial. And so it was cut off to the public. It wasn't available to the public. So these uh, newspaper organizations, these journalists, sued to get the information so that it could be public. And when the Washington Post won that case, they created a workable database that you can search for on Google. If you just type in Washington Post opioid database, it's the one of the first things to pop up. And it's an interactive database where you can actually go in and see for every county in America how many pills were distributed between 2006 and 2012. You can see the manufacturers that were distributing the pills. You can see the pharmacies in the counties that were distributing those particular drugs. But there's just it's just an unprecedented unprecedented excuse me number of uh, drugs that were were being produced and were being distributed in that time period between 2006 and 2012. In the United States alone, there were 76 billion pills that were wow were created and were um, distributed, and it's just. Uh, it's just extraordinary when you try and wrap your head around that. You'll you'll hear statistics, one that I shared the last time that I was here, that there are enough opioids produced uh, in the country for every adult American to have a month-long prescription. Uh, and that, that, I mean, it's just, there's the, again, kind of an unprecedented number of drugs that were being produced. And, um, and that's kind of at the heart of this. It's the availability of these drugs the way that they were distributed, the uh, propensity of, of medical professionals to use the drugs, to prescribe the drugs when they weren't particularly aware of all of the consequences of those things. And then the government regulatory system just didn't really hold up its end of the bargain. Um, and that leads us, I think, to where we are today, trying to scramble and figure out what we can do to reduce the number of deaths and to try and get less people using these extraordinarily addictive substances. Yeah. It, <clears throat> what I've heard, this is just a generality, uh, is the, do- the doctors were told by the pharmaceutical industry, those, those companies, mm-hmm. uh, that your, your patients deserve to be, uh, have minimal pain no matter what their disease is. And that's the way they sold it. You'll, you'll be better. Your, your patients will be better as a result of taking these opioid type drugs to relieve the pain. You're doing them a service. And like you said, there was no investigation on the part of the doctors that were prescribing these pills. They were believing that they were believing the salespeople for these pharmaceutical companies. Is that where, in other words, was it making it easier and, and the patient said, thank you very much. Cause I, the pain was relieved and I felt better. Is that what they were doing? Is that the trap they fell into? or Probably partially. There's no doubt that drugs like uh, you know, Oxycontin um, and, and other opioid prescriptions that people are used to, to 
to hearing about uh, hydrocodone prescriptions such as that. It's, there's no doubt that those work as far as helping with pain. The problem is the pay the 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 payout. There's opioids are produced in, in they interact with your brain in the same way that heroin does. Heroin is the narcotic opioid. So when you introduce uh, other opioids into people's bodies, the brain reacts in much the same way. The receptors in the brain that uh, interact with that drug provide you with a sense of relief, provide you with a sense of calm. Oftentimes people get sleepy. Very similar to the same outcomes that you'd see if someone was using heroin. They start to nod off. They get that warm flush over them. Um, people, when they're using heroin, are of not, they're not dangerous when they're high. It's when they come down and they need the substance and their body is screaming at them to go find that substance that you run into some difficulty. And your body responds the same way when you use an opioid, whether it's morphine, which is probably the most common uh, opioid that people are, are familiar with, or other painkillers that have been prescribed over the years and have become really popular. So doctors will have people that will come to them and say, this works very well, and it should, it's supposed to. But when those substances were created for medical purposes, they're supposed to be for people that were in the greatest amount of pain. Got it. Okay. And probably the best example of that today in 2019 is fentanyl. And fentanyl has been in the news because there have been a variety of celebrities that have overdosed on fentanyl recently. Yes. Prince, for one. And fentanyl is one of those substances that when it was created, it was created to be used just for people that are essentially terminal with cancer and in extraordinary pain. And it's now been sold by pharmaceutical companies as a more common painkiller. And it's going down the same path as some of these other, other opioids. And in fact, if you were to project forward, that's, that's the thing that's scary. We might have some substances reined in. There's other opioids coming down the pike that might interfere with whatever regulations we've actually put into place that are working for the opioids that exist. But I do think that doctors oftentimes, they have stressful jobs and they have lots of people coming to them saying that they're in pain. They've been told that these pills work. Their patients are telling them that they work and so they prescribe the pills. The problem is, is that we've known for a little while that these pills had some really negative downsides and that wasn't regulated very well in the medical profession, kind of generally. Obviously, there are some medical practitioners that did a better job than others. And on the government side, we just didn't do a very good job regulating that from the DEA level or the FDA level. So, Wow. I, I've just got a couple of things here from the CDC. Um, they indicated uh, that uh, 68,557 people died in 2018, that 72,224 people died in 2017. And so they're saying that uh, painkillers like morphine, codeine, uh, fell by 14.5%, but they're going to go, but they come out with a report that just verifies what you just said. However, those linked to synthetic opioids like fentanyl still rose. And they said that fentanyl is to be uh, up to 100 times stronger than morphine and has flooded the illegal U.S. drugs market. So that goes along exactly what you're saying. So 
there may have been some um, steps on the part of the doctors to be more cautious about those, but now we're saying that synthetic opioids are running rampant, 100 times stronger than morphine. I mean, we've got people uh, dying as a result of just that. Yeah, the the legal or the lethal toxicity of fentanyl is is an extraordinarily small amount. It's like less than what would fill up the size of a penny, oh. and because it's it's so extraordinarily strong. So it's one of the reasons that has been linked to so many overdose deaths because people will take it or it'll be laced into some other substance that they're using and it is extraordinarily strong. And so it knocks, it knocks people out and oftentimes uh, they don't recover. The difficulty, again, with kind of regulating that market as a whole is the, the companies that produce these substances they produce them for medicinal purpose, for legitimate medicinal purposes. And we want people to have access to things that help them live their life more comfortably. The, I think we need to have conversations uh, more often about what is a, a comfortable level of pain for people to live with. Um, that pain is kind of a general part of life that there might be healthier ways to try and go about alleviating pain than just pills. You mentioned at the beginning that this is a problem that's somewhat unique to America. And that's very true. It is a, an American problem in the sense that we, we are a, a pill heavy country. Yes. If there's something that bothers us, we think that there's a solution that we can access easily and we can swallow and it makes all of our problems go away and so we consume just an extraordinary amount of the world's opioids. You know, we're 5% of the world's population, but we consume much more than 5% of the world's painkillers. So I think there are some cultural things that might have contributed to our over-reliance on those substances. And the companies are profit-making companies, so yes, they're, they they're going to continue to make those pills. And again, as we'll talk about, I think, shortly, some of those companies have made just an extraordinary amount of money over this period of time. Um, and the problem becomes, what do we do with companies that are producing highly addictive substances and making profits off of those substances, and then people become addicted to those substances? If the company knows that this is happening, what is their responsibility? Yes. What is their responsibility to the medical practitioners that are providing those substances? What are their responsibilities to people that get addicted to those substances? Uh, I find it really, I find it interesting on a, on a lot of different levels to parse through those questions, especially when you compare it to the way that we've dealt with other people that have dealt with substance, dealt substances that are addictive over the years and how quickly we've been to demonize and criminalize individuals that have done that. So I, I think that that juxtaposition is interesting, uh, but on, on a practical level, I don't think we're at the end of the opioid crisis. I think it's great that we've seen a reduction in overdose deaths. I think more people are aware of the dangers, especially in the in medicine, more people are aware of that. There are, are less pills that are being used and less pills that are being described, but we still have a whole host of people that became addicted to these substances. And then when that happens, they have to turn to something else because the pills are more expensive on the street than heroin. So when you get addicted to an opioid and you can't afford it anymore, you can't get your prescription filled or you can't fake a prescription or you can't doctor hop 
whatever other right. technique they use to right. get their fix. They end up going to the street and trying to buy narcotics, which are obviously less safe for a variety of reasons, but they're also cheaper. And it's it, it then conflates these two issues um, in a way that becomes kind of uncomfortable to, to parse through. When I was in graduate school, I did some research with a professor where we were talking with individuals that were incarcerated for drug offenses. Okay. This was, again, kind of at the, at the nascent stages of the opioid crisis, right at the beginning. And I remember going in and talking with individuals, and I was shocked how many people kind of had the same story when I was going through these surveys with these uh, inmates. I would hear more frequently than any other story, I got in a car accident, or I fell off a ladder at work, or I broke my leg skiing, or I fell off my bike and I hurt my ribs. I got these painkillers from my doctor. I got addicted. Then I was on the street looking for drugs, or I robbed a pharmacy, or I was lying to doctors. We found there are multiple people that were incarcerated for forgery prescription. And it was it was it was obvious then. This would have been in 2006. Wow. It was obvious then if you spent any time in correctional facilities that this was an issue. And we're 13 years later, yep. and we're still kind of stuck in the middle of this thing. I think a lot of it has not just been uh, people's ignorance. I think they have chosen to be ignorant about it on the corporate level. They've chosen to try and ride it for profit. And I think that's what's led to a lot of the lawsuits that we've seen recently. Yeah, we're we're going we're gonna to get into those in a little bit. Um, let me just throw this one at you. When they, when the U.S. government allowed uh, uh, drug companies to advertise on the networks, they took the, 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 the shackles off. Mm -hmm. And if you look at any, any programming and you look at how many drugs that are being uh, promoted and anything that's wrong with you, uh, this can fix it. And then they have a thousand disclaimers in little fine print. Yeah. They talk real fast. Um, it's no wonder when you were saying about the U.S. society falling into this drug addiction, it's no wonder. Uh, every time we turn around, there's supposedly a drug that's going to fix our problem, our ailment. Yeah, we are one of two developed nations in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising from pharmaceutical companies. I believe the other one is New Zealand. I apologize to all yeah. Kiwis if I'm wrong about that. <laughs> but the uh, the... Direct-to-consumer advertising has undoubtedly increased the number of drugs that people are exposed to. You are far more familiar with prescriptions that are available today than you would have been before that change. Go to the doctor and the doctor would prescribe something to you. Now people go to the doctor and they demand that they have this particular substance. They have this particular prescription. Um, opioids or painkillers advertised. They I don't think there's as many today, but there's plenty of advertisements that you can go back and you can find where they were advertising to people about the miracle of these substances to be able to alleviate their pain. And I think you're right that it connects with our culture to say, well, if I feel this way, I can take this and it'll make me feel better. I think one of the things we have to realize about prescriptions is that for everything that you ingest into your body, prescriptions or otherwise, it does some good things and it does some bad things. And especially foreign or synthetic substances like prescription drugs, they might help 
with the pain that you're having in this part of your body, but they might exacerbate problems that you're having in another part of your body. Yep. And again, there is, you know, we, we have those pill cases, the, you know, Saturday through Sunday That's pill right. cases. That's right. And those are sometimes it's, it always kind of shocks me to see how big they've gotten over the years that they, you mean, you can stack a dozen pills into one of those days and you're popping those pills. And again, I know that there are, there are people that are in real pain or in real discomfort and they need to find ways to alleviate that discomfort. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be anything for people to take. I think people just need to be extremely aware of what the actual potential consequences of taking that substance are. Uh, the last time I was here, I advocated for alternative substances to be used. Yes, you did. Uh, one of those being medical marijuana. In states that have legalized ma marijuana for medicinal purposes, they've seen a reduction in overdose deaths when it comes to opioids. Wow. People can find other ways, and that's not the only way that people can alleviate their pain, but if you provide a way that is less lethal and less addictive, that it literally saves lives. And I think we need to continue to explore those. I think we need to have a better conversation uh, with uh, medical practitioners about what options people have. Uh, I think some of these resources we have, like the, the opioid database I mentioned earlier from the Washington Post. Yes, that was wonderful. I think those types of resources where people can find out if there are doctors or there are pharmacies that are essentially over-prescribing these substances, that type of information, again, it can, it can literally save lives. I think that's really important to have access to that, that type of information. Yeah. I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, we've got to step up, and the doctors are that are playing the doctor hopping game. That you, there, there's doctors out there. You just go and say, I, I don't feel well, and they prescribe whatever you want. Okay, we've got to we've got to clamp down on that. Um, and then the other thing was the the the, I, the doctors themselves. When you do some investigation, if you're not sophisticated enough with all the ingredients. Uh, and you, you look up a piece of research that said, oh, it's safe to use, or this is the level that you can prescribe and there won't be a problem. Uh, in today's world, uh, that could be uh, misleading information. It could be skewed research. And uh, the doctors would use that as evidence to support their decision to prescribe these opioids. Is there anything you see in the future, or is there anything in the works that would address that problem, whereby... The research themselves is being double-checked. I mean, even the CDC research has been challenged at times. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, Again, I think I would advocate for some personal responsibility on that end for what people are, are being prescribed and what they're putting in their bodies. Hopefully one of the things that – one of the positive things that comes out of this is that people realize that when they go to doctors, doctors have opinions and doctors make mistakes and doctors can uh, prescribe things that may or may not work. I think the more often you go see the doctor, the more you realize sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. Yeah, right. But I think most people go to the doctor and when they leave, they say, I just talked to an expert. They know what they're saying. I should be okay taking this. And they go see the pharmacist and the pharmacist hands them that novella of, 
uh, side effects that no one ends up reading. That's correct. So I hopefully people at this point have become educated and aware enough of opioid painkillers that they are they kind of self-police a little bit. I am not sure that there is going to be any regulatory changes that will disallow doctors from prescribing certain things. And I think part of the the joy of kind of the medical practice is having that autonomy to be able to prescribe people something that they might be in need of in the moment and finding them feeling better later. So I, I don't know if there's anything coming down. Maybe in the future there will be some more restrictions when regulatory bodies get a little bit more on board with how dangerous these drugs have been. But I don't know of anything happening right now that is going to be a quick fix okay. for that problem outside of medical practitioners starting to really realize the dangers and, and advocating other types of... Uh, of of prescriptions or other homeopathic resources that people can use. Fantastic. I'm going to take a short break here, and then when we come back, listeners, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the court cases in the the recent uh, news that you've heard about. We're going to talk about that and whether or not they are a detriment uh, uh, for this opioid crisis. Uh, we'll, we'll be discussing the cases themselves, Johnson & Johnson and Purdue, possibly. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Uh, this is Bob Oxley for Tips and saying goodbye. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody. Bob Oxley uh, Tips. We're back here again, and we have uh, Dr. Lish Harris helping us to understand the opioid crisis. Uh, in the first half, we discussed uh, what the crisis was and some of the uh, trends as far as uh, overdose, and we identified some of the uh, drugs themselves. And here we are in the second half of the show. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Lish. Here we go on phase two. And then what we like to do is open right up. I, I, there was a decision made by an Oklahoma court uh, this last week against Johnson & Johnson. Uh, it was determined uh, that the Johnson & Johnson needed to pay a bill of uh, $572 million uh, for a number of things that went on uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, and the opioid crisis, a real contributor to the opioid crisis. And I'd like to open that up with you. I guess my first question to you is, were you pleased with the decision or, and were you pleased with the amount of the fine? Their stock price went up. I saw that. After the fine came out. I saw that. Which is pretty remarkable. The uh, Look, $572 million to any normal human is an extraordinary amount of money. And it's not an insignificant fine that Johnson and Johnson uh, received for their participation in this. And this was, this is a lawsuit in Oklahoma, I believe. Yes, it was. And so that money is going to be going to help with uh, rehabilitative efforts. It's going to be helping with the crisis in that, in, in that area and, and beyond. But anytime you have a company whose stock price goes up, after they get fined $570 million, probably is an indication that th that people felt good about what the fine was. Investors felt good about it. And so I think everyone expected the fine to be much larger than it was. 
which maybe sets an, a tricky precedent for future lawsuits that are coming. But Johnson & Johnson is a, they have a recognizable name because everybody has one of their products in their house. Absolutely. Yeah. But they are they're not the company that has been at the forefront or that has profited the most from the opioid crisis. So I don't know. There's part of me that goes, oh, that's great. That's an extraordinary amount of money that will go towards a lot of good in those communities that have been ravaged by the crisis. On the other hand, it seems like if shareholders are making money after a company has been fined over half a, uh, half a billion dollars, that maybe they actually got off a little light when it came to the fine that they had to pay. Your interpretation was the same as mine. But I did a couple of checks of people that actually work for Johnson & Johnson oh, yeah. at their headquarters. <clears throat> and they indicated, jokingly, but they indicated we were so pleased with the determination uh, that uh, and it, one of the jokes that they said, which is, this is no laughing matter, but one of the jokes they said, that's in our petty cash in our corporate lobby. So what that did, when, when that individual made that statement to me, I wrote it down and I go, Maybe our, our world is, uh, our, my world, personal world, can't even conceive of the amounts of monies that uh, Johnson Johnson was involved with. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's just an amazing thing uh, <laughs> that Oklahoma brought out. If you look at the depositions and all of the evidence that was presented on this Johnson & Johnson case just in Oklahoma, it absolutely amazes you, it amazed me, I didn't read it all, but it amazed me that how involved and manipulative they were. And uh, the I, emails that were sent and the... Oh, the research that was done, the paid research that was done that skewed the results. And the one thing that shocked me the most was under a wholly owned subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, they bought a poppy field in Australia and they controlled 60% of the main ingredient to all of the manufacturers. So they were making money in every avenue you could think of on the opioid crisis. It's really remarkable. I mean, again, to get back to the the size of their fine, I was looking up online. Their revenue in 2018 for Johnson & Johnson was about $81.5 billion. So $572 million out of that pot is, you know, it's not, it's not a lot. It's um, you know, the amount of money that they, they, they make that amount of money in revenue in, in less than a week. Yes. So it's, it'd be the equivalent of someone who's making, uh, you know, a, a living wage in the United States being fined what they would make in about a week. And when you put it in that perspective, it, it really doesn't make as much of a dent as you would hope. And as you said, the, the lawsuits have brought to light how complicit the companies have been in the distribution of a substance that they knew was addictive and was lethal for a lot of people that were taking it. And so there has to be some culpability among those companies. And I think people have a, I think it, it makes sense for people to be upset that at the end of the day, a company like Johnson and Johnson will pay less than a week's wages to kind of clear their name in this particular crisis when they've helped propel this 
this crisis that's led to nearly half a million deaths, 400,000 deaths, I think, has been the, the total since exactly. the beginning of it's the turn said, of the century. Yeah, what they quoted from the CDC said that uh, the opioids have directly been uh, attributed to 400,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. between 1999 and 2017. And that came from the CDC. Yeah, it's just, it's a remarkable amount of harm that's been caused for profit. And when, again, I, I feel like if we went back to 1999, the companies may not, may not have been fully aware of the substance that they were shipping out. If we want to give them the benefit of the doubt, then I, we can. But it didn't take long to realize that this was a problem that was resulting in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people over the last couple of decades. So when that's all put into perspective, it just, again, for, for me personally, it doesn't feel like they were handed a, uh, a very stiff sentence. And when you compare that to other individuals yes. that have participated in the distribution of addictive substances, it really it, it really kind of makes you scratch your head at best. That's the point if I was not, making. Yeah, if not, yeah, if not say some, some choice words under your breath. And um, for me, I mean, I've spent time, as I mentioned before, I spent time in correctional facilities talking to people that have been incarcerated for substances. I, I study drug prohibition. I teach classes on it. We have discussions in my classes about some of these discrepancies uh, and when you start to take a look at, again, individuals, uh, New York State, to their credit, I think are going to expunge a whole bunch of different uh, cases that were uh, marijuana cases. Yes. But w across the country, we have people whose lives have legitimately been derailed in an extraordinary way, where they're felons, where they're unable to find employment if they're not incarcerated, right. where their lives have been torn apart for years on end because they've been incarcerated for far, far less damage than these multinational companies have done. And that's where it starts to really sit uncomfortably for me. Because I think in these cases, Johnson & Johnson, this is, this is the cost of doing business. The cost of doing business for them is they've made billions of dollars selling these products and then they pay a little tax on it. And then they get to go about producing baby powder and all the rest for everybody else. And uh, they're not the only company. In fact, the company that has made, produced the most pills during this crisis was a company called McKesson, which most people, it's a company they've never even heard of. And talk to us about that. Well, McKesson is an extraordinarily large corporation. Um, they're one of the biggest companies in the entire United States. I think they're like the fifth largest corporation. Johnson & Johnson, huge company. I said they made about $81.5 billion in 2018. McKesson made $208.4 billion. Wow. And Johnson & Johnson has their hands in a whole lot of different products. McKesson is, uh, is, is all in pharmaceuticals and medical supplies and uh, all tied up in that. They are an extraordinarily large company. They made billions and billions of dollars off of uh, products like opioids. And again, I mentioned that the you can go on websites and you can see who the distributor is for 
most of the pills in an area. For Washington County, the main distributor of opioid pills is McKesson Corporation. Wow. And they make a, a lot of money. <clears throat> they, they could afford to pay a $10 billion fine, a $10 billion, billion with a B dollar fine. And that is just a chump change when you're pulling in $210 billion a year. There are people in these corporations that knew what was going on, and none of those people are, to my knowledge, facing criminal charges for, for what they've done. Because of our legal system. It's very hard. The corporation is the individual. Yeah, well, and then the there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of overlap between some of the cases that we see with these drug companies and, and what we've seen over the last couple of decades with financial crimes. And there's doctrine that's out there in, in the legal system, especially in the federal legal system, that basically stipulates that you shouldn't punish a corporation beyond its capacity to continue to provide for those that work for the corporation because you don't want to do more damage to innocent workers at those companies. I mean, for a company like McKesson, uh, for as large as it is, it has 80,000 employees. Wow. The large majority of those employees aren't making these decisions. It's always been curious to me that the the fallback on that is to f- is to fine companies an amount that's big enough that raises some eyebrows but small enough that it doesn't really hurt the corporation. Where the other alternative can be find the executives and high or you know people that are in high up management positions and prosecute them criminally. If you do that, the company's not going to fold. You can find someone else to run the company. And you're also really putting a deterrent out there for people that are in other positions of power that they're going to be held personally responsible for some of the hundreds of thousands of deaths that their companies might be causing. It seems like that would be a place to fall for the justice system where it could actually try and seek some justice and not injure these companies in a way that innocent workers and employees are, are losing their, their way to, and that's who pays. to earn money. If, it is. It's not, it's not the executives. Like we just said with Johnson & Johnson, their stock price went up. I know. So the executives there, they pay the fine. Their stock portfolio goes up. The workers, you know, they're fine too. Um, but, you know, I mean, maybe we should talk about Purdue Pharmaceuticals a little bit, but there's possibility that that company is going to go bankrupt. Because of the lawsuit, the pending lawsuit in the state of Ohio, where they've clumped together about 2,000 cases of people that are suing yeah, the company. To go, to go along with Purdue Pharma, I, I uh, looked up, Oklahoma actually settled with uh, uh, Purdue earlier this year for $270 million. Uh, and they also settled with uh, Teva Pharmaceutical for $85 million. And so that left Johnson & Johnson as the lone defendant when they they came in and they thought they did a great job at 590 was it 5 572 572 million and then when you do the research on these corporations like you have done with McKesson this is chump change this is nothing yeah it's 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 again for it's hard to wrap your mind around i always tell my students whenever we talk about this stuff i teach a white collar crime class and we'll talk about corporations that have been fined billions of dollars and I'll always ask them, I'll, I'll say, do you guys know how many million are in a billion? 
And very rarely do the students really know. They always go, oh, it's a hundred million. I go, no, a hundred million is a hundred million. Yeah. It's a thousand million. A thousand, you can find someone $900 million, it's $900 million. A billion dollars is a thousand million dollars. It's such a mind boggling amount of money. And Purdue Pharmaceuticals, it may end up paying out to settle their case in Ohio, one to two billion dollars, which is an extraordinary amount of money. At the end of the day, the Sackler family who owns uh, Purdue or runs Purdue has the the lion's share of of their stock. They might have to declare for the company for bankruptcy and walk away. But again, none of those individuals are going to be held criminally liable for what they knew about the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and their role in that. Now, I'm not an advocate on across the kind of criminal spectrum for harsher sentences and longer sentences, but there should be some equity, at least in the game, when you have very comparable crimes. If you're going to lock up some kid that's selling drugs on a street corner for years of his life, and you have an executive from a company that's been selling drugs out of an office for year for decades and that person gets to walk away with their pockets lined with cash there does seem to be a little bit of an issue in that distribution of 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 justice and so i'm i'm curious to see in particular what happens with the the sackler family because i don't think there's going to be criminal charges that are brought uh, against individuals because in corporate cases it becomes really hard to establish motive it becomes really hard to establish certain legal criteria that you need to find someone or to, to prove that someone's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but man it just feels bad it just feels bad to know that there are these corporations that have produced this this true crisis in america and have profited from it and then when they do get fined it ends up being kind of a shrug, and they can walk away. And, and they, they probably built right into it. What do you think our exposure would be on this if they catch us? Absolutely. It's it, it Again, it parallels white-collar crime on the corporate level really yes. well, where people will know, well, we might get in trouble for this, but we'll pay a fine and we'll keep going. Um, and again, to borrow terminology kind of from that world, a corporation like McKesson and Johnson & Johnson, they're too big to fail. There's too many employees and the legal doctrine that's used in the Department of Justice on a federal level is to not financially cripple those companies because it will end up having a ripple effect throughout the company and end up hurting a lot of people whose livelihoods depend on it. So you have to balance that out. And I understand that balance. I actually think it makes a lot of sense, but I continue to fall back on then why not prosecute people criminally because that doesn't affect the rest of the employees. They're not losing their job, but it's still individuals that knew what was going on and profited the most from what was going on are going to be held accountable for those, yeah, those decisions. And to go along with that line of thought, when you talk to CEOs, they, they said, it's really simple. I'm given a list of things that I'm going to be measured upon. And for me to get the bonus that I'm after, the three, five, ten million, twenty million dollar bonus at the end of the year, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to um, uh, identify and to succeed and exceed those uh, given parameters for my bonus. So I'm sure there's a way in there. They're saying, well, if we cross the line here, 
and amongst our trustworthy people, then, and if we, even if we get caught, our exposure is minimal. I, I, I honestly believe that it's, it's an ongoing process, and so it's, it's a catch-22 situation. People work hard to get to that CEO. They do the cultural capital thing, and they come back, and they weigh, what's my return on my investment, and what's my exposure? And yeah. that's the determining factor, and that's how these big corporations move forward. And they get the attaboys from the board of directors with when they show their profitability and growth. And well, I think that that undoubtedly there had to be high fives in the Johnson and Johnson office. Absolutely. I mean, again, when you get fined for your participation in what has undoubtedly been a an American tragedy on the front of on the drug front over the last couple of decades, and you get fined and you can walk away and your stock price goes up, it's just it's really remarkable. One of the other things, one of the most kind of twisted aspects of all of this is is when there there are substances that exist out there that can reverse opioid overdose so there's a, a drug called uh naloxone um narcon is the most kind of well-known brand of that and if you go and you visit um emt specialists you know that ride along in ambulances you go and visit firehouses and talk to firefighters Almost all of them have Narcan on them in America now because if they get called out to someone that has overdosed, they can inject them with Narcan and they can save lives. It's a, it's, oh. It is a legitimate lifesaver, That's which is fantastic. I think it's one of the reasons we've actually seen a reduction in overdose deaths. If you go and you look at the companies that are making money off of Narcan, it's oftentimes the companies that produce the opioids. It's almost like the snake oil salesman that used to come through town and he'd sell both the poison and the antidote. It's it in in again, if you're a company, uh, if you're a, a profit seeking company, good for you and being able to to make money on that end. It just the conflict of interest is just it's just ripe. I just don't, I don't know how to completely wrap my head around it. That there's companies that produce this drug that causes uh, extreme um, trauma across the country and in some areas. It is just. It's hollowed out certain areas. I mentioned West Virginia earlier. Yes. Com- uh, cities in West Virginia and certain counties in in Ohio and in that Midwestern, the kind of the Rust Belt of America, have really been hit so extraordinarily hard. I was listening to um, uh, an individual talk the other day about some of these communities and how the money that they get from these lawsuits, they're going to have to go not just to rehabilitative services, but their foster care system is tapped out. Oh wow! Because yeah. m- parents were overdosing together, and the kids were left alone. Like they, they, they are so overwhelmed on just all social services in general that they, they, they need funds desperately. The companies that were profiting from this type of destruction then are profiting off of the, the drug that can help save people that find themselves in that, and it just. Again, it just kind of makes your stomach churn a little bit when you understand, when you try and look at the totality of what's been going on. Now, the drug that can, Narcan and, and other drugs like it, thank goodness for them. And I hope they, uh, they're available to people uh, across the country that need them and that can help save lives. Uh, but again, there's something twistedly ironic in the companies making money off of that after having spurned on this crisis and then getting fined such a little amount 
that again they can high five in their corporate offices as they watch their stock price climb up. And I just thought of another angle on this. So let's say Johnson Johnson say, well, I, they cut back, whatever, on the areas that they've been identified in the uh, court case. They cut back on that particular product, those that product, opioids. Mm-hmm. But they can now make the money up with the drugs that are going to resolve or at least attempt to resolve the problem, just like you were saying, it's a win-win situation. There's no, there's no exposure whatsoever. We're going to make up for it because we're going to, we're going to wave the flag and we're going to be the savior of the opioid crisis, even though the, we're the ones that created it. Yeah. Again, there's, it's just, it's also interconnected in such a strange way. And I, I'm really hopeful that some of these lawsuits will lead not just to uh, changes within the corporate structure of these companies, although I'm, I'm pessimistic that, that that will happen. But I hope that this is something that will lead to regulatory changes that enforcement agencies like the DEA will take their role in uh, regulating this particular aspect of the drug market a little bit more seriously. Again, especially with drugs, if opioids go away or if their role is diminished as a painkiller, it's not going to displace the pain that people feel. It's going to, the, the, those individuals that are in pain are still going to need something to help alleviate that pain. And so hopefully we can learn from the mistakes that we've made in regulating pain medications. And we can do a better job making sure that the pain medications that are available to people are not pain medications that are essentially going to lead them down a path of narcotic use and overdose i think if we can learn that lesson it's not going to make what happened better but we we can hopefully avoid some of the same pitfalls in the future so what you're saying is we really need more regulation and we need the agencies to be more directed i think Um, we need the agencies that are there to do their jobs better i just again the, the dea is the agency that regulates the number of pills that are made these companies cannot make the amount of pills that they make unless the DEA signs off on it. So there's, when the opioid crisis hit, there were pills that were being purchased, 76 billion pills over a six-year period. The government regulating agency that was supposed to oversee all of that said, thumbs up, good job, keep on pumping out the pills, essentially. right? They didn't, they didn't tell them to scale back. When they have told them to scale back, has been in such an insignificant way that it hasn't hurt their their bottom line. And so I I think moving forward, there just needs to be a little bit more pressure on those regulatory agencies to do what they've been asked to do and to regulate what we can consume. Again, there needs to be some personal accountability in there. But when you go see your doctor and they prescribe you something, you feel okay taking it. You, You have to have trust and confidence in the physician that's taking care of you. And uh, I'm just as guilty as, as most uh, sure. individuals. Uh, when he or she prescribes pills for me, I go to the local pharmacy and get those filled, and I follow the orders of what I should take and when uh, with a complete trust. And uh, unfortunately, like I said earlier, the, the research is skewed. The research is paid for by Johnson & Johnson mm-hmm. or Purdue. And uh, people don't, don't look at that. I always say if you're going to look at research, look at when it was done, what institution actually did it was irreputable. And the big thing is who paid for it? Sure. Yeah. And, and with Johnson and Johnson, with all these wholly owned subsidiaries and McKesson's the same way and Purdue was the same way. It's hard to track 
who owns what when you're on the outside. Yeah. And uh, they do that on purpose. They do. They had a wholly owned subsidiary in Australia with the poppy seeds coming in. Nobody, nobody tracked that until this case came out last week in Oklahoma. So yeah, it's maybe they'll get into the muffin global, business. Global manipulation. Yeah, you know, it's and remarkable. we're the ones that we're the ones that bought into it. I wonder if uh, have, have had any research as far as like Canada, for example. Their government buys all the. Uh, prescriptive drugs they negotiate with the pharmaceutical agencies directly i wonder if do they control the dosages do they have more control because of that universal health care as compared to what the system we have or i'm not sure i'm not sure what what that would look like yeah i i i guess we should take a look at that in the future and and, uh let's do some comparative studies of universal health care those major countries that have that compared to our system is that opening the doors you know, I, I don't know. It's something worthwhile taking a look at. All right. Now I've got uh, one. I've got a couple minutes left here, and I really like to just get. I appreciate all your insight thus far. What do you know of anyone uh, or anyone in the in the Washington County area or any agency that people with an opioid crisis uh, problem in their family or themselves personally, where can they go to get help? You, are you aware of any of those resources? Uh, I know there are. So one of the things that I have three children, uh, they're young enough that they probably aren't rifling through our medicine cabinet yet. But I think it's important for people that uh, have leftover prescriptions in their house to be aware of how to dispose of them. Okay. I think that's one of the steps that kind of on household level people can can take control of. So there are prescription drop boxes around town you can look up where they are online but those prescription drop boxes allow you to take your old prescriptions and you can drop them into the box it's essentially like a mailbox and they'll be disposed of by by professionals and one of the reasons that that's important is because people will leave their prescriptions that they had filled but they didn't use they kind of hold on to them I, i remember doing this especially when i was in grad school and i didn't have any money and you were like, I, you know, I got sick a couple of months ago. If it comes back, I got the prescription. I don't need to go to the doctor. And that's that's problematic if you have pills that uh, are like this that are painkillers and that can be addictive and that can be abused. So that's kind of on a, on a household level one thing that people can do. There are resources around town. There's rehabilitative services that people can try and access. Um, but I would say this. If you notice that someone in if you are aware of someone or suspicious of someone having a problem with opioids in your family address it and address it quickly okay. because it is not one of those problems that you want to have linger because it can have such devastating consequences and anybody that's had friends or family that have suffered through addiction it is it's a village that that really needs to come together to try and help help an individual um, I think if you if you look at the numbers, Washington County, relatively speaking, has not had a huge opioid outbreak compared to a lot of other places, even places within the, our own state. Kane County has had a bigger issue. In Arizona, Mojave County, just to the south of us, has had more of an issue. But the resources that are available... Um, Try and take advantage of them sooner rather than later because, like I said, 
the the consequences of putting off helping someone that has this issue that that has become addicted the the result could be fatal and there's there's nothing you can do to help after that great um and i'm real this is directed to our students here at dixie state university that that same advice goes for your roommates in the dorms absolutely Uh, and here on campus there are resources available to students um, through the dean of students office through our counseling health and wellness center Um, those resources for students are free so they should definitely take advantage of those if they know of someone who's who's having an issue you're doing them a favor absolutely you're doing them a favor it's not uh you're turning them in or anything like that you're doing them a favor long term okay i think that's about it dr lish harris thank you very much for coming with us in today and and really explaining where we are with opioid crisis an update that we received i really enjoyed discussions on johnson and johnson and purdue mckesson that was that was really interesting and then your insight as to what you would like to see from a uh, criminal justice modification as far as those that are CEOs or executives within these major pharmaceutical companies that know what they're doing, uh, that were actually perpetrators of the opioid crisis, and that they should indeed be uh, prosecuted some way and pay a penalty some way. Thank you for having me, Bob. Uh, I appreciate it. It was just great. Um, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes uh tips for this this week at topics issues and positions uh well if you want to see that smiling face of uh, dr harris who's now the uh, chair of the applied sociology and the criminal justice department uh, you can catch us on facebook twitter podcast which is pod being affili- affiliate on that um as well as uh, a number of other sources out there uh but we're live 24 hours seven days a week you could take a look at this show over and over again uh, go to Radio St. George, our app there. It has all those uh, access. You can just tap on it, and you'll go to Facebook or, or Twitter or Podbean or whatever you want to see. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, once again, I want to thank you for joining us. We'll see you or hear from you or listen. You'll hear from us uh, next week on tips, topics, issues, and positions. This is Bob Oxley signing off for this week.